0: everybody and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Mark Shapiro, who teaches at the University of Scranton. Here to talk about his new book, Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History, published in 2015 by the Litman Library of Jewish Civilization. Mark, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. So Mark, who are we talking about when we talk about the Orthodox uh, or adherence of Orthodox Judaism?
1: Well, I would say the, we're dealing with people who are committed to uh, halachic observance in their lives. Uh, we use the term orthodox really for about the last 150 years with the, derise, with the rise of denominations. So you have orthodox and you have other groups. And it really is an Ashkenazic-centered uh, phenomenon because in the Sephardic world, you don't really have groups that are self-identifying as orthodox or other types of denominations, uh, But as I said, uh, today it's a shorthand for all sorts of people who are are committed to the halachic system and follow uh, the rulings of uh, significant rabbis uh, on all sorts of matters.
0: And there's an idea among the Orthodox that their version of Judaism is immutable, right? Unchanged. Um, That's an... ideological position as much as a historical one, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the Orthodox know uh, that uh, there have been changes here and there, but they do believe that the fundamental aspects of Jewish law and tradition have remained constant and just uh, certain manifestations, which are always latent and present in the uh, original revelation or uh, teachings of the rabbis, they, uh, there, there are some changes there in accordance with different circumstances, but nothing fundamental changes.
0: So what is orthodox history? You say that there's a tension between historical truth and the desire of religious communities to pass on their religious message.
1: I refer to uh, what I discuss in the book as orthodox history because it's not a history like we think of in the academy. It's not. We certainly don't think that in the academy we're, quote, objective, but at least we try to be. And we put aside our uh, we try to put aside our, our preconceptions and try to arrive at uh, uh, a fair assessment of the past and offer interpretations of it, but in so-called orthodox history, uh, you actually know where you're going to get to before you start uh, examining the material. Uh, it's all about presenting the past in line with certain ideological uh, presuppositions. And uh, that is, it, it's very much in line with uh, what we would used to call communist history in that uh there is a goal. History has a goal that you, historiography that you want to get across, and that really is how history was historically written for a long time. That uh, the point of retelling a tale of the past is for how it will impact the present. So, in that sense, what I describe as orthodox history is actually following a long tradition of how people wrote history, not just in the Jewish world, in ancient Greece and Rome, medieval times as well.
0: So, in order to to present history in a certain way. Um, Orthodox Jews have to do a certain type of alteration. And the majority of your book is about censorship. So tell us, what are some of the types of censorship that you identified? And is there an example um, that particularly struck you? Well,
1: I have, I mean, perhaps the example that struck me, it struck uh, much of the world was um famous picture of uh, Hillary Clinton and, um, together with Obama and other important figures watching the raid that uh, that that killed Osama bin Laden when that was reprinted in a uh, Satmar newspaper Hillary Clinton was uh her picture was removed I begin the book with that simply because it's it's a story that uh became well known and led to uh you know much much discussion in the general media but uh what I try to do in the book is more serious uh I I, I take various figures, important ones like Samson Raphael Hirsch or Abraham Isaac Cook. I have a chapter dealing with uh, sexual matters, I guess you could say puritanical sentiments. I deal with Jewish law, Jewish thought, and I focus on uh, certain ideas and uh, texts from hundreds of years ago or even more recently that present ideas that today are not in line with how the Orthodox community or at least segments of the Orthodox community likes to present matters. Obviously, that presents a problem because if you have a canonical text that says something different, uh, what do you do with it? Uh, And I provided many examples, including a number of pictures, showing exactly what was done with it. Uh, Texts were actually deleted completely or words were altered, all in order to create a myth that what we do today is what was always done because certain people are afraid that if others realize that, uh, you know, there has been great changes in practice, then that will destroy the illusion of a continuing uh, traditionalism. I think perhaps the most uh, interesting example, and people are unaware of this entirely, is that uh, it used to be that the Sabbath started for most of Jewry at a different time than it does today. People used to start the Sabbath after sunset. That was in accordance with a uh, medieval view of uh, the famous rabino Tam, and until World War One, that was quite common. It's become totally uh, wiped out today. Uh, people don't even realize this. And and this is also an enormous change because uh, the Sabbath comes every week and it's very important. The idea that Jews changed the time when they started celebrating the Sabbath really, I think, would trouble many people who believe in the notion of tradition, Masora, as they call it. And I d- discussed an example of where. Uh, a work of the famous Rabbi Moses Sofer, the Chatam Sofer of uh, Bratislava Pressburg, uh, in which he discusses this matter when this was reprinted in uh, Brooklyn in the 19, early 1950s. Uh, none other than the great Rabbi Moses Sofer was uh, censored. And if Moses Sofer, who was really the most important quote orthodox figure of the last 200 years, if he could be censored, then it shouldn't surprise us that uh, standard texts uh, from Rashi and all sorts of Maimonides and all sorts of great figures have also been censored, all in
0: order to make the past in line with the present. Mm-hmm. So you have present day, you know, sort of guardians of the faith altering older sacred texts. What justification is given for doing this?
1: Well, we don't really have any justifications per se because they never see the need to uh, discuss this. We do have a. Uh, an essay by uh, the late Rabbi uh, Shimon Schwab. He was the head of the Washington Heights Orthodox community in which he wrote in opposition to the idea of history, as we understand it. And uh, he said that we don't need history. We don't need to know about the disputes of the past. What we need from the past is inspiration. So that is a justification for uh, cleaning up the past, as it were, providing a, an idealized vision of history. It's not that far, however, from what uh, I also focus on in the book, which is actually alteration of text, which Schwab does not refer to and does not mention. But uh, once you assume that the past itself is not of importance for us and it's only an idealized version, well, then how do you uh, prevent people from uh, knowing about the actual past and to give them this idealized version, version? Sometimes that requires actual censorship, not just uh, making up stories, but actually altering texts. So I think uh, what we see today and what I document in the book is probably uh, just further along the continuum uh, that Rabbi uh, Schwab was uh, speaking about. In fact, in another essay, Rabbi Schwab, in discussing the difference between how the Talmudic rabbis uh, date the past, the Persian period, they have a much shorter period than what uh, secular history tells us, he actually makes the case that the rabbis of the Talmud were covering up the, this information for their own reasons. So uh, you have a his- historical tradition, according to Rabbi Schwab, that apparently would justify this as well. But we don't have any actual written testimony from the people doing this sort of censorship as to why they think it's uh, it's necessary or important. Uh,
0: how do we know um about the alteration or the omission do we have different manuscripts H- how did you as a scholar find out
1: well uh, i found out uh, because uh just ha- most of the examples i found myself through happenstance it's, others have been pointed by uh, additional scholars but uh often it would be that i'd see an old text and uh with a very shocking uh you know expression or formulation and uh, i'd want to see um you know, what the more recent figures, sometimes these texts have commentaries on them. So I want to see what the recent figures have to say about this. So when you go to the more recent editions, lo and behold, uh, the lines are missing. Or uh, I saw other texts that attack a work because of something that appears in this work. And when I go to the more modern editions to find it, it's nowhere to be found. So I went back. Today, it's quite easy because we have online hebrewbooks.org. There's a database called which has like 70,000 uh, texts but it used to be I was fortunate that I was at Harvard which had a great library uh, and I'd be able to go to the original text but I would I go to the more modern texts, the more the ones that you can access much easier and I didn't see what was being referred to and then so then I started noticing this on a number of occasions and every time I found an unusual passage something which I thought did not would not go over well today I made a point of comparing more recent printings, and it never ceased to amaze me how more recent printings would often either delete the passage entirely or simply uh, change a few words. Uh, Obviously, printers in modern times, in certain circles, felt that it was within their prerogative, if they thought that the community, to use a phrase from a famous movie, couldn't handle the truth, that uh, it was permitted for them to uh, alter the text.
0: Is this type of alteration or censorship or um, distortion even, is it true of other fundamentalist faiths? Uh, And the reason I ask is because you say that the the Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community, is a community of scholars to a significant extent. And so the written word is central. So one can understand, you know, sort of why why, uh, censorship of words might be particularly important.
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. And when I first started researching, I was certain that this would exist in other communities as well. And uh, I've asked around uh, scholars of Christianity and of Islam uh, in particular, and uh, none of them were aware of this. Uh, I find it hard to believe that uh, this is a phenomenon unique in religious circles uh, to traditional Judaism. But I have not been able to find any other examples of such a phenomenon uh, that exists uh, in other religious groupings. I'm waiting for someone to point it out to
0: me because, as I said,
1: I find it hard to believe that this is just a phenomenon um, in the traditionalist orthodox world.
0: Is this a a uniquely modern phenomenon? When did Jewish sort of censorship begin? Um, And does technology help censors?
1: Technology is very important. It is not completely unique uh, to modern times. I give examples where I think it's apparent that uh, even in the Talmudic period, Later texts, for example, there's an example I have where a, a woman is cited as the originator of a rabbinic teaching in one source and in a different source, uh, it's attributed uh, to someone else. And uh, the case has been made that here's an example of uh, censoring out women, because uh, when the passage was later recorded, uh, you didn't want to have a woman as the originator of this text a passage. And we have other examples of where... Um, passages were um, suppressed but when you get to in earlier periods when you get to the more modern period it becomes uh, really quite standard and uh, technology is of vital importance because many books are reprinted they are reprinted cheaply today either photo offset or resetting the type and especially when you reset the type it gives you a great leeway to delete passages that you don't like and no one will be the wiser with the photo offset, you have to white it out. Or you have to rearrange the pages. That's much more complicated. Although I provide examples of that as well. But today, when you buy a uh, a work that's been newly typeset, the reader has no way of knowing if anything has been removed or uh, you know if that's the actual text. And uh, with the figure of Ruff Cook, for instance, his approbations, his haskamote, are routinely omitted. Newly typeset works. So uh, technology, as uh, has, as you rightly uh, suggest, has made it much easier to do this.
0: You mentioned that justifications are not given, um, but can you get into the mind of some of these, you know, Orthodox and ultra Orthodox censors? What are the calculations that they're performing? It seems like they're thinking about their own communities, you know, the wider Jewish world and the non Jewish world, and sort of how uh their text might might play in those three realms.
1: Yeah, when I when I say justifications aren't given, it, it, what I mean is that when someone reprints a work, he doesn't say at the beginning, you know, I've left out certain passages. Uh, occasionally, actually, you actually will find this, but that's not the general rule and explain that. So you have to extrapolate, but the reasons are obvious that the, when they'll they'll reprint a work and um it'll have a passage from Ruff Cook in it who today is no longer regarded as an acceptable figure in in certain right-wing circles. So it'll be removed. You have a passage that uh, shows that the author uh, thought very highly of Zionism or of um, a secular Hebrew writer. All these deletions are of a sort that uh, in today's day and age, people would read this and it would lessen their opinion, or at least this is what the censors believe, it would lessen their opinion of the author he would no longer be able to serve a role as a canonical figure in the Haredi circles. So, for example, Samson Raphael Hirsch. If he criticizes Maimonides, that's not acceptable in those circles. So That needs to be deleted. If Rabbi David C. Hoffman discusses how in Hirsch's community, in Hirsch's own high school, uh, in elementary school, the boys did not wear head coverings, kipot, uh, for the secular subjects, that's not the sort of thing that people want uh, to be known in today's world because it implies that there's, you know, just because you don't cover your hair doesn't mean that you're not observant, uh, so it needs to be removed. I have a chapter dealing with sexual matters, puritanical matters, in which we see, incidentally, that uh, we're more puritanical today than uh, people were in the past, and obviously these passages have been deleted because uh, the censors think it would shock the sensibilities of their readers. So they're operating in a context of where there's a certain realm of acceptability of discourse, and anything which breaks from that has to be suppressed. It's quite a fascinating phenomenon. But in the book, I don't just try to list them. I try to explain, you know, the motivations and uh, try to put it in the context of intellectual history.
0: Before we get into the specific chapters, um, I want to ask you, how did you get interested in the Orthodox?
1: Well, I grew up in the community and... um, you know, the Orthodox community is, uh, itself is of interest to people who live in it. Uh, I, I don't think there's any other uh, religious community in the Jewish world uh, in which there's as much interest and involvement in the scholarship and the history than in the Orthodox. If you go into any yeshiva, the students there, as much as they're interested in studying Talmud and the Bible... They're as interested, sometimes even more interested in knowing the stories, the histories of the great rabbis, uh, things like that. So I I come from uh, that world. And um, it's always, uh, I think, uh, enjoyable to write about your own community, especially as I began to learn that much of what I had been taught and much of what uh, passed for, quote, history in my world uh, was really um, combinations of history and myth. So although not all of my scholarship are focused on that, has focused on this, a good deal
0: has. Chapter two is called Jewish Thought. Yeah, it's about bringing erroneous previous Jewish thought into line. Uh, how exactly does this alteration work? And were you surprised that um, some you know, historic rabbinic figures don't get spared?
1: Yeah, uh, it works the same way that... Uh, the other uh, chapters describe matters that, uh, you know, cutting things out, uh, suppressing passages. Uh, one of the most interesting cases there I deal with is a uh, standard commentary on Maimonides in which he uh, mentions that this, his understanding of the story of uh, the Akedah, of, of the sacrifice of Isaac, that this only happened in a dream. It didn't actually happen in reality, and uh, uh, this is an interesting uh, perspective. Uh, whether this is correct or not, uh, I'm not sure I discuss in the book, but uh, this passage appears in all the printings of the guide. This is by the commentator, A. Fodi, until you get to the 19th century. And it's now absent from all printings uh, of the guide for the perplexed uh, with the commentaries. So here you have an example of where an idea, which is thought to be too radical, is deleted. I discussed in there other examples, Rashi. Rashi is a very important figure. Maimonides Uh Translation among Maimonides that doesn't want to offend women, so it doesn't uh, actually translate what he says about them. Subsequent to the book I've written about how Art Scroll, the, the Orthodox publishing company, has deleted passages of Rabbi Samuel Ben Mayer, the Rashbam, which they don't think are in line with what they want their readers to know about. Of course, they make the claim that Rashbam couldn't have said this. Often censors will say things like this that uh, even if you have manuscripts and you have testimony from people from that period, they will say that he could not have said it. When Rabbi Moses Feinstein declared that uh, a medieval biblical commentary of Rabbi Judah the Pious, Judah HaChassid, uh, had to be banned because it had certain proto biblical criticism, what he said was that Judah HaChassid could not have said this because no medieval Jew could have said this. Well, the fact is that uh, he did say it, and uh, Medi- other medieval Jews said this as well.
0: Chapter 3 is uh, called Halakha, Jewish Law. Uh, one of the most famous examples you deal with uh, has to do with wine. Can you tell us briefly about that?
1: Yes. In, um, today, uh, it's taken for granted that Orthodox Jews need special wine that non-Jews don't touch. Uh, this is based on the rabbinic decree Uh, from the Talmudic period, that uh, in order to prevent intermarriage, uh, actually that's a later justification. The original was because they would use the wine for various idolatrous ceremonies and later the idea came in that to prevent intermarriage, uh, Jews and non-Jews should not drink wine together and uh, wine produced by non-Jews should not be drunk by Jews. However, there's a whole history of Jews ignoring this prohibition. Water was not uh, usually safe to drink in many parts of Europe. And we know, for instance, that in Italy, this wine was consumed In Moravia was consumed. And uh, Rabbi Moses Isserlis, who for Ashkenazic Jewry for the last 500 years is uh, the most important of all halachic figures, because he's the author of the Ashkenazic Shulchan Aruch. He he wrote the uh, addendums, the glosses to Rabbi Joseph Karo's Shulchan Aruch, and in a responsum, Moses Esserless, although he is not at all happy with the fact that the Jews of Moravia, you know, just in general, the typical Jew in Moravia is drinking non-Jewish wine, he bends over backwards to find a justification for it. It is this responsum in which he justifies the drinking of this wine that uh, is deleted and until uh, modern times uh, does not appear in his responsa. And that's what I mean when I speak about Jewish law. This is obviously an uncomfortable passage. In fact, in this case, the censors no doubt would have said that Moses Isserlis himself would not have wanted us to reprint this responsum if he thought that people who today are not drinking this wine would use this responsum to justify what they're, you know, adopting this practice. So they'll they'll present all sorts of justifications. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, it's covering up an important opinion by a leading halachic authority, and uh, I, I give other examples of this, including what I mentioned earlier, how Ramos's uh, sofer, the Chatam Sofer, what he writes about when the Sabbath starts, how that was uh, deleted as well.
0: We've touched on uh, this figure already, but Chapter 4 deals with Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Um, who was he? Um, why is he important, and 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 how is he censored?
1: He is... Um, Really, the, the originator of what we call neo-orthodoxy, a great uh, German rabbi in the 19th century who put forth this notion that the Jews should be um, observant, but yet involved with the world. Uh, for him, the greatest role of a traditional Jew was to be a government worker, a lawyer, a doctor. He basically made the case that Jews don't need to live in a ghetto and that Jews need to be involved in Western society at the same time as they are pious. This doesn't sound like the sort of figure for whom uh, the people today we call the Haredim or the right wing uh, would find attractive because uh, their whole uh, notion of uh, how to be a traditional Jew is to separate yourself from uh, the wider world. However, Hirsch had two other notions. One was that uh, he absolutely forbid any organizational involvement with the non-Orthodox. So here's an example of someone who culturally was very open, but religiously had certain elements of extremism. And also, he was an anti-Zionist. He believed that Jews should remain in the diaspora until the arrival of the Messiah. Now, both of these other two points fit in very well with uh, right-wing Haredi thought. Uh, and Hirsch actually has been adopted, has been made a, an important figure in the Haredi world. He's one of their canon, is in their canon of great Torah figures. The problem, however, is what to do with uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch. With his expressions of support for secular studies, uh, his love of secular literature, uh, for his his general uh, ideas that uh, a Jew was supposed to not be in the ghetto. He wrote that the ghetto is something that we were put in against our will. How then to make Samson Raphael Hirsch work in today's Haredi world? He also criticized Maimonides very sharply, and that's not acceptable today. And therefore, what you have today in the Haredi world is Samson Raphael Hirsch updated and corrected when they reprint his writings they delete anything which is problematic from their perspective and that's why uh, it's uh, it doesn't just speak to hirsch as an individual it speaks to the changes in the haredi world and how they relate to german orthodoxy and uh, the ideals of german orthodoxy
0: the following chapter deals with another um, rabbinic figure rabbi Uh, Abraham Isaac Cook. Uh, What's going on in that chapter? This is uh, even more interesting because you
1: have censorship not just from the opponents of Rabbi Cook, but also by his supporters for the exact opposite reasons. Uh, uh, Rav Cook in his lifetime was a very controversial figure, although he was widely accepted in the rabbinic world. Uh, He had opponents in the more extremist Hungarian uh, communities, but he was generally accepted in the more mainstream world. However, in the last uh, 30, 40 years or so, uh, with the rise of religious Zionism, and particularly after the 67 war, and of Cook becoming a central figure for them, there has been a movement to completely remove him from the canon of uh, great rabbis. Uh, part of the way you do this is uh, removing his approbation. So for the people who want to remove him, they remove his approbations when they reprint works, and approbation is something that when people would write rabbinic texts, they would want a great rabbi to testify that he knows this author and that uh, you can, his works are valuable. This is found in all sorts of uh, rabbinic writings. Rav Kook, for the Haredi world, as he's become persona non grata, there's a complete rewriting of history of his place in that world and of removal of his writings and of his responsa that appear in the writings of other rabbinic sages at, of, of that community. At the same time, you find censorship of Rav Cook from his followers in the religious Zionist world. Rav Cook's writings, his um, his unpublished writings, were suppressed for a long time, and even today, although many of them have gotten out, certain groups refuse to print them, and they uh, and they don't want people to know about them. Although these are the supporters of Rav Cook, they make the claim that because Rav Cook is so controversial today our job is to try to mainstream him. And we can't mainstream him and fight against the forces that are trying to delegitimize him by releasing all of his writings because his writings contain very provocative theological musings. And therefore, they view themselves not as destroying Rav as the other side, but as protecting Rav And they protect him precisely by censoring what he writes because as they put it, and they justify this explicitly, they've written about this, the generation is not yet ripe. The generation is not yet able to digest the brilliance of Rav and therefore his insights need to be kept under wraps. So you have censorship of Rav both by his opponents and by his followers for the exact opposite reason. Now Rav Cook as the most important religious Zionist thinker, um, and an enormous importance in the religious Zionist uh, orthodox world, uh, uh, this is of great importance. Uh, you, uh, you have people whose lives literally revolve around Rav Cook and his philosophy. So the fact that uh, there's a dispute taking place in those very communities about how much of Rav Cook should be released to the general public is, uh, I think, of great interest and uh, deserving of a chapter.
0: Right. Chapter 6, as you mentioned, deals with sexual matters, and then Chapter 7 deals with other censored items. I want to ask you about the, the Hasidim. Um, what's going on in that section in Chapter 7?
1: Well, you have all sorts of um, uh, stories, Hasidic tales and uh, things of that nature, which uh, today uh, you know people would find them problematic, and therefore uh, uh, they're, they're censored. For example, we have uh, Hasidic texts which are quite antinomian. Uh, which, uh, you know, at the beginning of the Hasidic movement, you had, uh, you know, Rebbe's who would express themselves that, uh, you know, the law doesn't always need to be followed. Uh, we have and that wouldn't work today. We I, I discuss an example there of a great Hasidic Rebbe, the Belzer Rebbe, who when he left uh, Budapest in 1944, he had his brother give a, an address in which he said that uh, you don't need to worry. The Rebbe not leaving you because he's afraid of what's happening. He just wants to go to the land of Israel. This is the sort of passage that after the war, um, you wouldn't want to reprint because, first of all, it shows the Belzer Rebbe making a terrible mistake, and also uh, because the, the, the people who were listening to this uh, sermon uh, were the ones who had to deal with the Nazis not long after that. Uh, you have other examples uh, of where passages that, as uh, I said, reflect a sentiment of Hasidism or even of opposition to the Hasidim. Today, The Orthodox world does not have any of this old opposition to the Hasidic movement that existed in the earlier years. So if you have a text that is very critical of the Hasidic movement, that's not the sort of thing that the leaders of Orthodoxy today want to remind people of. So these are the sorts of things I discuss in that chapter.
0: So after surveying all these types of censorship, distortion, alteration, we're sort of left with the question, doesn't Judaism demand truth? Isn't it a truth? Isn't it a value that Judaism holds high? Uh, how do we get around this?
1: Yes, and that's, I mean, the Talmud mentions that uh, in numerous times. And if you ask the typical person, Jewish person, they'll assume that truth is a value. And uh, this it was this chapter that I think uh, for many people was the most troubling. I can say it was the most troubling uh, for me because uh, my conclusion is that there are actually two traditions. Uh, one, There's one tradition that insists, basically on truth, with certain exceptions. So, for example, there's a famous uh, dispute in the Talmud. Do you, do you tell a bride who's not beautiful that she's beautiful, or, uh, or do you have to tell the truth? The school of Hillel says that uh, you tell every bride she's beautiful, or you say about every bride she's beautiful, and the school of Shammai says you can't lie, because truth is of great importance. That doesn't mean, according to him, that you'd say she's ugly, or you'd say she's a beautiful person, or you wouldn't say anything at all. And we decide the law in accordance with the House of Hillel, Beit Hill, And that's how we're able to live. Because if someone gives you a present that uh, you don't like, uh, you don't have to tell them, I don't like it. I'm going to return it tomorrow. You can say you like it. You know, human emotions, concern for the others, trump absolute truth. So now that the door has been opened a bit that we don't uh, insist on truth at all times, how far open do you leave the door? As I mentioned, there is a whole school of thought that says that uh, with these limited exceptions, notwithstanding, truth is of an important value, and you need to advocate truth. However, there's another school of thought, which argues that there's more important things than truth in a whole range of areas, and uh, they believe that the truth can be altered in order to serve one's fellow man. And if you're a rabbinic leader, you can alter the truth in order to best serve your community. The, an example which many cite is that if you think that your community is not following the rabbinic law, knowing that uh, many people don't take rabbinic laws so seriously, it is permissible to tell them that this law is actually a Torah violation. And I cite numerous examples from the Talmud and uh, subsequent sources that show rabbis taking liberty with the truth. In the name of a greater good, Uh, I believe that there are two traditions, one which sees truth as pretty much instrumental and the other sees truth as having inherent value. And due to apologetics, which has created this idea of the absolute notions of truth, we really have not been told about this other tradition, which uh, I try to take the veil off it. And I I make the case that, um, according to some rabbis... um, you know, truth. They understand it in accordance with uh, Plato's idea of the noble law, uh, the noble lie that you're allowed to lie to people for their own good, and that itself is a form of truth. That truth doesn't need to be historical or factual, but if you get them to follow God's will, then that's that's true as well. That's truth as well, and that is able to trump um, actual historical truth or factual truth. And uh, that's that's my claim in the book, and we we'll, and scholars will either agree or they won't agree. But I do think that we have two traditions uh, in the Talmud that, as I said, because of apologetics and of uh, discomfort with this notion,
0: uh, it's been covered up. Mark, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History, published in 2015 by the Litman Library of Jewish Civilization. The author is Mark Shapiro. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.